Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE master technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. GreatNorthernElectric.com Serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. What's cracking, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today, my guest is Tara Simmons. Good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for asking. Awesome. I appreciate you taking the trek out here and um, checking out b- beautiful Bainbridge Island. Um, you Do you live in Bremerton, is it? I do. I live in Tracyton. Tracyton. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Tracyton Pub has best chicken wings around. Yeah, so they say. <laughs> well, my son was playing soccer for Kitsap for a little bit out there by the fairgrounds and... Uh, Every once in a while, I'd go out there and get the get the garlic wings. You know, mm-hmm. But I've since been more plant based. Do you uh, not like them? Or is- well, I had them on what was it Wednesday night and walked down Wing- there. Wednesday wings, yeah, and uh, you know mine were a little salty, so maybe I need to try a different uh, rub next time. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I get it, man. There's a lot of salty wings. There's these uh, <laughs> jerk chicken ones that I like, but here on the island, but sometimes they come out super salty. And I'm like, what happened? Yeah. Anyway, did you live your uh, entire childhood in Bremerton? Yeah, I actually moved here when I was about nine years old uh, and lived in East Bremerton mostly, uh, went to Central Kitsap High School and graduated from there. Um, what kind of changes has Bremerton seen since you were a kid to today? Yeah, well, there's been a lot of changes. You know, East Bremerton used to be really vibrant um, with, especially on the Wheaton Way corridor with a lot of businesses, and they've since closed. Um, Meanwhile, the downtown Bremerton has really, um, you know, revitalized, and there's a lot more going on downtown Bremerton on the west side. Um, But overall, I think, you know, there's been some flux with businesses and and things, but it's grown a a little bit um, in the last, you know, 30 years. Um, but do, you, do you think there's not a massive amount of growth in Bremerton because it's a, a military type city? So military families are constantly rotating in and out and there's enough housing for that military community that's there? Well, I would say that we are struggling with housing, uh, you know, capacity uh, in Bremerton. And I think some of it is uh, attributed to 
um, you know, people being pushed out of Seattle and moving over to Bremerton because of housing prices. So we are starting to feel that um, kind of, you know, there isn't a lot of rentals and and houses to buy. Um, it's the market isn't plentiful for for no. folks in Bremerton. What's the homelessness like out there? What type of percentage? Um, I'm not sure about the percentage of homelessness, but um, we are seeing an increase in that. Um, everywhere is. Yeah, yeah, everywhere. And, you know, downtown Bremerton uh, and in East Bremerton, too, we're finding a lot of people um, struggling from different walks of life. Uh, housing affordability has, you know, really um, hurt our most vulnerable people, um, but also folks um, that have, um, you know, jobs are just can't afford to find a place to live. Um, and so it is uh, very unfortunate. It is increasing. Um, and there's a, an amazing community that's really organizing to meet the need uh, because our um, you know government is not addressing it um, as we should. Well, you have a lot of vulnerability yourself and you've had a, um, a, a long lived life already. Yeah. And uh, I'd like to share a little bit of that story if um, you're willing to. Absolutely. As a child um, in Bremerton, why did your parents move there in the first place when you were young? You know, uh, my stepfather's mother lived here, and and so I think that's what brought us here when I was nine. Um, both of my parents, my mom and my stepdad, were um, suffering with substance use disorder and having hard times, uh, you know, thriving in a working environment. And, and so we moved around a lot, actually, before we landed here. Um, and so we moved here when I was nine. I really don't know all the details because I was a kid, mm-hmm. but I think it had to do something with the um, failing of their bar that they owned over in Colville, Washington. Where's um, Colville? It's uh, about an hour north of Spokane. Okay. Close to uh, Idaho, just past Moses Lake. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Yep. I kind of got it now. So y- your parents had some, some drug issues when they were in Bremerton. Um what was your childhood like growing up um, in that community? Yeah, it was, you know, a lot of adverse childhood experiences I went through. My father lived in Stockton, California, so I kind of got shuffled between my mother up here and my father down there um, over a period of time. But, um, you know, when your parents are not um, able to give you that nurturing that you need from early on, um, you know, I was pretty much neglected and raised myself. Um, and there was a lot of abuse at home, um, and a was lot that because your parents were were high, and then they took it out on you and hit you? Yeah, I mean that, and neglecting me, so I was um, victimized by people they had around them. Uh, um, so both and, um, and eventually I left home permanently at thirteen years old and lived homeless in Bremerton. Um, did they come looking for you? You know, I think they tried at times, um, and uh, I didn't want to be with them either. Um, mm-hmm. And so I tried, you know, and going through foster care, and didn't really want to be there either. So, how, how do you say, "Hey, I ran away from my parents. Uh, take me into foster care." How do they receive that at that agency, at that age too? Yeah, I mean, I remember one time, you know, I had been sleeping on the park bench down at Evergreen Park in Bremerton and I called the police and said I have nowhere to go been down here for a week and they they did take me and put me into a foster home uh, but the foster home was you know people that I didn't know people mm-hmm. that um, you know I didn't connect to and eventually I left there too so those cycles continued for uh, a while until I finally uh, found myself pregnant at 14 years old and How did that pregnancy happen? Were you seeing somebody on the streets? Yes. And were they? Were you using drugs at all at that age? Uh, I think I might might have smoked pot sometimes, but um, yeah, I was not using any heavy drugs at that time. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you were were not in school while you no. were in this situation. Then you found yourself pregnant, mm-hmm. and how did that turn out? Well, for a while, you know, actually I found out I was pregnant because, again, I was homeless and I was very, very sick and went to the emergency room and was septic. I had a kidney infection that had traveled into my bloodstream and um, found out I was pregnant at 14. And 
it was, you know, I stayed for five days and every day the social worker came and uh, offered me different kinds of services. And one of them was, you know, getting me hooked up with a public health nurse and also with uh, Department of Social and Health Services, where I was able to get a little bit of money, cash assistance, and I finally actually signed my first lease for my first apartment at 15 years old. Wow. Um, And for a lot of people, they would think this is a really tough situation to be in, but it was the first time in my life where I felt like I had a door and I had some safety. Um, So I started to build from there. I went um, back to school and I had zero credits and I uh, went to an alternative school, Central Kitsap High School, and the teachers were um, so amazing and really cared. Who took care of the baby when you were in school? Uh, he went to child care, and they had child care center at the alternative school. Yeah, a lot of a lot of schools nowadays have child care at the schools. Mm-hmm. I've seen it in quite a few places. Yeah. So you got your uh, high school diploma? Yep. I did all four years of high school in one year and graduated at 16. And then wow. my... Uh, so they're just slow playing my kid for four years at the high school here. Is that what they're doing? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you're very strong acad- academic, academically. Mm-hmm. Um, so in an academic uh, environment, does, does things come easier for you? Or are you a savant of some sort? Because four years in one, that's a lot. Yeah. No, I think um, whenever I like put my mind towards something – um, I kind of go all in on it. And I uh, found that I did have success uh, academically. And so I don't know if it comes easier to me, but I just work really hard. Um, Would you say you have an addictive personality? Like Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm all in yes, on whatever I, I it is. I definitely am in recovery. Um, and it's, uh, you know... Uh, an obsessive compulsive disorder um, can manifest in several ways. And mm-hmm. um, there is, you know, alcoholism, addiction. It can be, you know, really negative, destructive ways. Um, and you could also use it to your benefit. But it's something that I have to also think about in my work life and make sure that I schedule massages and downtime and I'll walk down to the Tracy Tim pub to have some wings with mm-hmm. my partner and you know, things like that, just um, to make sure that I'm not overdoing it. But um, yeah, college is a place where I was able to thrive and um, work hard and be successful. Awesome. I want to give a shout out to Integrated Wellness, who uh, I did some cupping mm-hmm. on Wednesday and my back feels so much better. I've never tried it. I mm-hmm. want to uh, give them a little bit of praise. So when you say you're in recovery, what are you recovering from and how does one start a recovery process or how did your recovery process start? Yeah. So I'm in recovery from substance use disorder. Um, and no, 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 that's too fancy. Yeah. What were you doing? Well, I was using uh, a variety of uh, drugs. It started with pills that were prescribed to me from my doctor. So opiates um, and that, uh, you know, changed into um different illegal drugs, meth, um, and, uh, you know, pills together, um, you know, some alcohol in there too. Um, and so how did that affect your motherhood as well? It, it really, um, you know, caused me to not be a good mom for a period of time. Um, so you were kind of repeating the cycle of your own mother. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, it wasn't until, you know, I was arrested and incarcerated that I was able to really look at that and realize that I was covering up a lot of trauma from my childhood. So Mm -hmm. I'm in recovery for life from trauma, from adverse childhood experiences um, and, um, and, you know, substances. I, you know, today have eight and a half years clean and sober. I don't drink alcohol, um, use any form of drugs, any pills i you know if a doctor wants to prescribe me something i definitely do not want it um fortunately i uh, haven't needed anything but Mm -hmm. if i ever have a surgery or something like that it's you know there's legitimate reasons that people need that and fortunately today i have a really strong support network that i would talk to and and work through that with and make sure i'm not using for any other purposes to hide any other kind Mm -hmm. of emotions right yeah, when I was going through my drama, um, 
it got to a point where I had a wisdom tooth pulled and I didn't want to have Novocaine. Mm-hmm. And I was into the meditation and mindfulness. I still am, yeah. but I was trying to find my way. And I was like, hey, I, I understand that women give birth and that's very painful. Yeah. You know, it, I'm kind of weak when it comes to pain. <laughs> yeah. Let me get my tooth pulled and see if I can do it with nothing. Yeah. And, oh. and the dentist was like, no. Yeah. And I was like, it's my choice. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I felt it. Um, and that was an experience. And I'm wondering sometimes when someone has an alcohol or drug problem, can they go completely with the addictive personality the other way? And all of a sudden now you're strict vegan, no. you know, or yeah. you're afraid of aspirin. Yeah. Um, do you have any of that type of feeling? No, I don't go that far. Um, I definitely... Um, well, recently I did have a dental um, surgery and I did have to take um, some sleeping. They wanted to put me to sleep. So I did take some medication for that. Um, yeah. But I was able to afterwards just sustain on ibuprofen and not have to you know, take opiates. Um, but it's just a really thoughtful consideration. And I would definitely take the Novocaine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I tried it, done that. Yeah. I'm done with it. Um so you got arrested. Yes. What was that day like? What had led up to you making the decision of, you're going to have to describe your crime because I wasn't yeah. there, yeah. Um, to do what you did and what type of family dynamic was going on at that time with your child and you? Yeah. So during uh, you know the 10 months of my you know uh, really hard addiction, um, I had eventually like moved out of my place with my ex-husband and children and was hanging around the wrong people and really just had lost myself completely. Um, Every day was just about how am I going to get high next? Um, It was a sad situation and it's the story of a lot of people who find themselves in active addiction and, um, you know, I had been arrested several times over the course of three months um, for stealing from stores, um, you know, to get money to buy uh, drugs. And you stealing stuff and then selling the stuff? Yes. So, what exactly. type of things would you steal? Oh, it just depends, you know, whatever, uh, you know, kind of like my drug dealer wanted. Um, mm. So, he lobbied for you, hey, I need a new speaker or a new. Yeah. Stuff like that. Eight track tape. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, um, you know, and then I would get caught with the stuff and with uh, maybe an uh, empty bag of um, methamphetamines or, um, you know, things like that. But w- the last time I was arrested, it was because I had sold um, a few pills um, that were prescribed to me to um, somebody, an undercover. Um, and so they had got a search warrant um, and were able to raid the residence where I was staying. And again, you know, um, found drugs and found, um, you know, my um, possession of stolen goods. And- yeah. And also a firearm from my um, boyfriend at the time. Um, so you didn't have the firearm on you when you were arrested? No. But, but you still got stuck with that collar? Yes. Yeah. So the last time I was arrested, um, you know, I, there was no getting out, no posting bail, no, you know, I was, I was, had to finally surrender um, and finally say, yeah, there's no getting out of this. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard. And uh, I wish that we had more kind of like a trauma informed way of approaching these social issues. Oh, for sure. Um, but it also, gave me the opportunity to look within myself and find out and go on a journey of healing. And like, why, why was I doing all of this? Um, it definitely goes back to um, childhood, not ever feeling good enough, um, not ever feeling like I'm worthy, you know, those types of things. And that's the common theme of my friends and family that are in recovery now. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can be real and be vulnerable about that, and not carry the stigma of trauma and mental health issues. Was there recovery assistance while you were jailed? Yeah, after I got out of the actual jail and into the prison, um, I... uh, Tell people what the difference between jail and prison is. 
Yeah, um, jail, you know, they don't have a lot of services there. It's um, really about your hold, you're staying there while you're waiting to find out what's going to happen to you, if you're going to be released, if you're going to be, what you're going to be charged with, um, while you're going through the court process. Um, so jail is a, a lot worse in a lot of ways because you're basically in these pods and you, um, you know, are locked down in cells, um, you know, all the time and uh, maybe get out you know, for certain times for certain things. And um, there just isn't a lot of rehabilitation going on in jails. Mm -hmm. Now, there's not a lot in prison either, but hopefully we're going to change that. Or in the medical Um, field, you know, if I, if I cure you, you know, my patient's lost and you're no longer um, a financial consideration to me. So it's best that I just put a bandaid on you and see you again soon. Yeah. And that's a lot, a lot of what's wrong with jail system. Yeah. But you seem to have found um, a lot of good while you were there, right? Well, not in jail, but I I took the first plea bargain available to me because I wanted out of there. So three weeks Mm -hmm. later, I, uh, you know, just took the plea bargain, went to prison. um, And it was a a journey, a process. You know, I was in prison for 16 months um, before I transferred to work release. And while I was there, you know, there was a lot more volunteer programs that came in. So different faith groups came, um, different, uh, it was the first time I was exposed to anonymous 12-step programs, and I really leaned into those and started to do my own personal healing work in between the meetings, you know, step work, um, and really started to look at, you know, the underlying root causes of why I was using drugs to begin with, and um, and letting go of a lot of shame that I was carrying that didn't belong to me. How did you um, discover that you wanted to pursue law? There again, in in prison, um, there was a group of law students that came. And, you know, when you go to prison, you have the criminal conviction court case, but then there's so many other civil legal issues that follow you. For example, you know, I was a registered nurse and, the Department of Health was taking action against my nursing license because of my criminal conviction. Um, my ex-husband was filing for a divorce and trying to get child custody. And um, I was losing my home in foreclosure. And um, all of these court fines and fees that they saddle people with when you're convicted of a crime called legal financial obligations were accruing 12% interest the whole time you're in prison. And so you come out and uh, maybe they'll garnish your minimum wage paycheck to pay these court fines and fees. And Mm -hmm. there were so many other legal issues that I was facing. And these group of law students came and they were helping me solve all of these other legal issues. And they they saw that I was helping other women uh, with their legal issues now because I had learned how to navigate these processes and well you definitely have a vested interest right yeah absolutely get me out of here yeah yeah and so i um you know they those law students told me that they thought that i would be a good lawyer too and i thought well when i get out you know i have this extensive criminal history i have i was able to keep my rn license but it was going to be really hard to find a job with the criminal record And what was I going to do? I I needed to find a new career that I could provide for my children who I was able to keep and Mm -hmm. all of these things. And, um, and so with their encouragement, um, I decided I really wanted to go to law school and figure out how to help other people. And was there uh, any roadblocks to being accepted to law school? Um, You went to Seattle U University. Yeah. I mean, I think there might have been, but uh, fortunately, I i mean, there were definitely roadblocks, um, you know, getting the money to take the law school admission test when you're poor. Um, these are things that all people face from, you know, marginalized backgrounds, um, you know, getting the support um, to even file the application and the fees and all of this. And I had to walk through all those barriers and was able to overcome them. Um, but based on my criminal history, you know, they do ask and I was forthcoming and told them, but I had, um, you know, spoken with different folks who had expertise in this area and said, you know, we think if you go to law school, you're going to be admitted to the bar because um, of your background and all the things that you're doing in recovery now. Um, So there was definitely roadblocks, but. um, Do you need a four-year degree before you go into law school? Yes. 
So where did the four-year degree, where did that enter, enter into play? Was that oh, yeah. when you were studying to be a nurse? Yes. Gotcha. So by the time I was 21, I had a bachelor's degree in nursing. Now getting it invited to go to the bar and then practicing law are two completely different hurdles, correct? Yes. Being invited to go to law school and then getting accepted by the bar are completely different hurdles. Gotcha. Yes. And uh, was there somebody that helped you with that? Absolutely. Um, Who's Sean Hardwood to you? Sean Hopwood, yes. Hopwood. Yes. Excuse me. He is my very, very dear friend who um, is somebody who had served time also and actually was the person who um, helped me get into law school. He was a second year uh, law student at University of Washington uh, when I met him and I had read his book called The Law Man. Um, and, and reached out and said, I want to go to law school too. And he, while I was in law school, he graduated and got admitted to the Washington State Bar Association, Mm -hmm. became a lawyer, despite his, uh, very significant, um, background with, um, robbing five banks (laughs) and, uh, at gunpoint, uh, and serving 12 years in federal prison. Um, and then. That's late time for those crimes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So he was, you know, a friend of mine and a mentor and throughout, you know, before law school, during law school. And so, um, you know, he had been admitted himself and was now a professor at Georgetown Law School in Washington, D.C. Um, and and then when, you know, I applied to take the bar exam, uh, despite, you know, Governor Inslee appointing me to two of these statewide policy boards and I'd been doing advocacy in Olympia and started a nonprofit and interned at all these public interest organizations and had over a hundred letters of support from judges and legislators and community folks who I had mentored and supported on their journeys. And the bar association said I didn't have the character and fitness to become an attorney um, because I um, was too proud of my accomplishments um, around my Skadden Fellowship, which was this really um, prestigious fellowship that um, Skadden Law Firm gives to 30 people around the country every year for the last 30 years. And I was the first person from Washington State to ever win one of these very prestigious fellowships. And, um, you know, it was really, really hard and painful. And so Sean Hopwood came back from Washington, D.C. and said, we're not going to let this injustice stand. And he fought for me. And we uh, got before the state Supreme Court um, and made history because that had not never happened before. And the court uh, ruled unanimously on the same day. That's excellent. And I think the, what was it, the judge in that? Is, is that the when justice. you say that justice justice you justice you really went out of her way to to praise you and and speak very highly of you correct yes so she 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 must be a ally in your corner correct yes well a lot of them are um you know today i work with a few of them on different um access to justice issues really fighting for our immigrant community right now around being able to come to the courthouse and not be afraid of being arrested, Um, working on gender inequities, um, working on racial justice. Um, So I am a part of a lot of different um, kind of commissions that they lead up. Um, And, you know, before even my Supreme Court hearing, I had presented to the Supreme Court a couple of times on the need for civil legal aid and reentry barriers, um, and those types of things, and so. And when you say reentry, reentry to society. Yes, reentry after incarceration, or even as simple as you know, not going to jail or prison, but just having a criminal record um, can really um, prevent somebody from ever having opportunity. Yeah. Um, to find employment, to find housing, because we ask those questions on applications all the time for employment and for housing. And and that's, you know, a part of the homelessness problem is that we, um, even if you can afford it, um, if you have a criminal record, it's like, you know, landlords can just discriminate against you and not rent to you and it's lawful. Yeah. Do you think um, incarcerated people should have the right to vote? 
Well, yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you why. I think, um, you know, Maine and Vermont have never taken away that right. Um, Our country is founded on, um, you know, white supremacy. And um, those laws around taking your right to vote away were um, created during the time of Jim Crow era laws and no longer being able to suppress the black vote. Um, we created uh, a way to get around that. And that's through, well, we will um, disproportionately incarcerate and criminalize mm-hmm. people of color. Well, we're in the business of jails, yeah. not rehab. And then we will take away your right to vote. And there's no legitimate reason to take away the right to vote. The punishment is your, your loss of liberty and being in prison and away from your family. You well, know, you isn't don't... one of those... Um, Loss of liberty, isn't that partially you're, you've given up your right to vote because you've committed this crime? There's a, there's a strong argument on that side, too. I'm not saying yeah, I'm yeah, one way I, or the other. but I hear you. Um, I think we, we already punish way too much. Your right to vote should be a basic human right um, for a couple of reasons. First, if you want to encourage rehabilitation, you want people when they're in prison to start becoming educated and civically active and participating. Um, And you want them to do pro-social things and voting is a pro-social thing. Um, So if we want to be a rehabilitative society in our prisons, we want people to start voting. Also, I think if folks were voting from prison, um, our um, policymakers would start paying attention to what's going on in prison a little bit more. I got the Um, prison vote. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, not just that, but... It's a new demographic for people. Yeah, and, well, and I think, you know, honestly, people that are formerly incarcerated are not all one party. So, right. I under you know, they're across the political spectrum for a lot of different reasons, and this is why we've been able to garner so much bipartisan support around criminal justice reform lately, is um, recognizing that people from a particular demographic are not monolithic, right? There's mm-hmm. a lot of variety. Um, but we are spending $80 billion a year in this country incarcerating people, um, and it's a failed experiment. Um, we uh, send them there and then dehumanize and traumatize more mm-hmm. and then kick them out without any reentry planning and just expect them to not come back. And we ignore the stats that they reoffend. Yes. Because exactly. they must. Absolutely. Yeah. One in three people will come back to co- come back to prison within three years in Washington state. And then the majority of them are in transitional housing or homeless. Exactly. And now, we're not paying attention, but we're spending all of this money in this system. That's not working. And yeah. a lot of legislators, it's not a, a thing. That's not a priority. priority. Yeah. So you're practicing public defender right now, correct? I am an attorney. I'm not a public defender. So I mostly help people with reentry barriers. So when they're coming out and they need help, um, waiving their court fines and fees and things like that. Most of my work is actually policy um, and legislative work. I'm a director now. Mm. So you're um, not going into the courthouse and going through all those people that are on the street. Because even the police are saying now in Seattle that it's difficult and they feel unsafe just entering the courthouse. Yeah. And, you know, I've been a Seattleite for my entire life, minus four years. And, that courthouse area has always been a place where p- people hung out, you know, in the park. And there's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the pigeons there and just people screaming. And that's where the mental illness was. That was kind of the homestead. You walk out of the jail or the courthouse and you sit on that lawn and that's your new home. Mm-hmm. And now it's just continuing to spread. And you're seeing it in so many different uh, places. Living in Kentucky, yeah. you saw a lot of... Um, vacant business and illiterate people and people live in, in the Appalachians and it was a different type of homeless, you know, mm-hmm. because people were somewhat of a homesteader, you know, making their moonshine and bon- bonfires. And, mm-hmm. and I look at Seattle and Skid Row and, and, and the coronavirus and it's just, it's, we do not have the answers for this, but yet we have all the data that says this is what happens when we jail people. Mm-hmm. How do you, as in, in any political climate, start forcing that change? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I, my office is right next door to that courthouse in that park. Yeah. Um, so I commute to Seattle, um, you know, several times a week 
um, when I'm not in Olympia or here in my district. Um, but, you know, one of the most effective things that I've been proud to be a part of is um, developing, uh, you know, law enforcement assisted diversion programs and things like that, where instead of arresting people, police officers in Seattle have the tools needed to actually treat root causes. So for low level um, drug offenses, prostitution, these types of things, it, we know and we are developing those programs to um, treat the root causes. Housing first, right? Getting a case manager that the individual can trust and it's relationship based. Um, so it's not rocket science, it's social science. And we need really good case managers that can develop that trust with the severely mentally ill, with people who've had a lot of adverse um, traumatic experiences and and they become willing mm-hmm. to accept services. That, that's hard to, to just have the acceptance to change. And I know Bremerton does a good job of handing out, I think it's a little blue book of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, give somebody a, a, a resource book give, with a granola bar when you yeah. see them. Make eye contact. Yeah. Make sure they count count and they, they know that you care and that you you see them. Yes. So tell me all the projects that you're involved in right now. Um, you have this... Um, civil Survival Group. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. So Civil Survival is a nonprofit I co-founded in 2015, started here in Kitsap County. We do uh, community organizing, leadership development, mm-hmm. uh, legislative advocacy, and, and building out our legal services now. Um, and so most of our work is, um, you know, Olympia-based. We have worked with uh, local and county or city and county um legislative bodies too, but pushing forward uh, policy change around folks who are reentering from incarceration. Um, And some of our legislative priorities um, have been really successful in Olympia, Um, banning the box for employment, um, reforming those court fines and fees so you no longer have the 12% interest um, accumulating on that on top of it, you know, adding insult to injury. Um, Last year, we um, got the New Hope Act through, which was, uh, you know, working with Representative Drew Hansen um, around vacating criminal records, uh, passed the House and the Senate unanimously. Um, so building those bipartisan efforts uh, and building relationships to continue to do more work around this area. Um, we, you know, do a lot of different um, speaking engagements and um you know, just trying to help educate people around the actual data and statistics and the failed experiment of mass incarceration um, presentations um, and just, you know, changing uh, things. But this year we have some uh, several legislative efforts, too. One is taking the New Hope Act and making it happen automatically because folks don't have access to attorneys. Um, one was voting rights reenfranchisement, and we weren't even talking about people in prison. We were talking about people when they come out of prison, and unfortunately that failed um, two nights ago in a really, really um, sad loss um, on the Senate floor. Um, and we're all still kind of processing um, what happened on that issue. Um, you know, kids, we're trying to break down these generational cycles, right, and make sure our kids don't end up following the same That's so path. important. You know it firsthand. Yeah, absolutely. So anything we can do, uh, you know, we work with the Central Kitsap School District on uh, reforming uh, school discipline and push out. Instead, we want to get these kids to get their needs met uh, and stay in school. Um, so I've been working on that. Um, right now, we're working on making sure our kids can have parental engagement at school. So uh, parents that have criminal records, um, depending upon the school district, um, you know, you might not be able to volunteer in your kids' school. I, I still can't volunteer in my own children's school, mm-hmm. but I am an attorney, um, the director of a nonprofit, have eight and a half years in recovery. Um, and that, you know, is not for me because I've got a million things to do, but my kids are the ones that suffer from that. You know, my son, yeah. a wrestler, needs uh you know would like for me to be able to chaperone him and his buddies to a wrestling match the wrestling team needs parental support Mm -hmm. but there's these laws that continue to harm um families and and perpetuate cycles so we're trying to interrupt them at every aspect we can uh you listen to much 
podcasts at all? Not too much. I got one for you called Wrongful Conviction. Oh, okay. Um, Jason, I want to say Fam. He's got a funky last name. Jason Flum. Flum. He's my friend. Yeah, he he produces this podcast. And the work that he does to overturn wrongful convictions and then, you know, he's so empathetic and so giving and he pushes it even further. Like we're going to, we're going to get this process going and we're going to provide aftercare for you. Yeah. And I think him and his group have overturned something like 180 cases. Yeah. He's one of my dearest friends. I am in communication with him regularly. He founded the innocence project. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm I just on the peripheral of it, and it's one of 80-some podcasts I try to get to. Um, but it's really well done, and it's fascinating stuff. How did you come into contact with him? So very, very... Um, How do you say his last name again? Flum. Jason Flum. Flum. He's also Flum. the founder and CEO of Lava Records. Um, so I met him through my national criminal justice reform work, um, you know, over the last few years, I've traveled all over the country um, being part of these national conversations. And um, I met him through there first and then found out that his father was the founder of the Skadden Foundation, which is the... Wow. Um, his father was a big attorney in New York um, and founded the Skadden Foundation, which has okay. been around for 30 years. And, and that's then, the one that gave you the grant. Yeah. Right? The one was I, it grant? Yeah, it was a uh, fellowship which funded my position out of law school for two years um, to continue to do the work I'm doing. So um, they invest in leaders that they know will go on to do great things and, and change this world. Um, yeah, you, you probably need somebody like that in your corner because I can't imagine being in prison and having that 12% rack up and then the bankruptcy and then paying for law school. How, how, how did you do that? Yeah, that might well, be your biggest um, magic trick so far, right? I'm still paying for law school, so don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I'm not immune from the student loan industrial complex, too. So, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Bernie, so, where are you at? Yeah, I know, right? Um, fortunately, uh, you know, we still have public service uh, loan forgiveness. So I make my monthly payment. And as long as I stay in nonprofit or government work, public service work, mm. um, you know, hopefully if we keep the program within 10 years, my loans will be forgiven. But I definitely had to rely on loans for school. I think this show is going nonprofit now. Yeah. You've convinced <laughs> there me. you go. There you go. Wipe my debt out somebody. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So Jason is a dear, dear friend of mine. And um, has been very supportive of my campaign. Um, Tell him the bystander said, what's up? All right, I will. I'll send this to him. <laughs> awesome. Um, so I, I guess all this is accumulated to you are running for, what do we what do we say, Aaron? LD23? That's what the hip kids are saying it? Yeah. Calling it now? LD23, state house. Oh, see, I got it, 23 LD. I See, I'm still not hip. Yeah. Um, that is in Kitsap County. Yes. In the corridor from Wheaton to here on beautiful yes. Bainbridge Island. Yes. Tell me what you would like to see um, happen in Bremelo. Um, shout out to Mixalot <laughs> and uh, Bainbridge Island here and Definitely. the pros and cons and, and the difference between yeah. the two communities, but yet they're still under this umbrella of yeah. where you're going to actively participate. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm running because I think, you know, I've really made a lot of relationships in Olympia that, um, and, you know, getting actual policy through Olympia uh, is really relationship-based. And I have this huge network that I had through my criminal justice work Um but really want to go upstream and prevent incarceration to begin with. I think that the criminal justice system is a Band-Aid of a lot of other inequities um, much earlier on, um, including, you know, an economy that works for everyone is my top priority. Um, making sure we have pathways to opportunity for everyone, not just for privileged folks who have the money to go to law school or, um, you know, people who have um you know, family support, because not everyone has that, unfortunately. So uh, unions are a great place. I want to be a, a champion for unions and for workers' rights and for family wage jobs. What, but, kind of, what kind of unions are around here? I know there's a carpentry and 
What else? Yeah, we have a labor union full of, um, yeah, the carpenters, the laborers, the um, electricians, um, you know, machinists. Uh, there's several unions. Is there a union that would affect Bainbridge Island? I guess an electrician would come over here or a carpenter if and they let you build anything on this island. <laughs> yeah, and folks, you know, are fluid along our district. So you might have people commuting to the Fred Meyer um, on Wheaton Way, which is, you know, covered by UFCW um, 21, right? Um, okay, all of what's our, that acronym? The United Food and Commercial Workers. Thank you. Yeah, and so, I mean, our educators are a union, right? Um, and so they're in, our public service employees, our union, um, there's lots of unions, and we need to continue to work on workers' rights, period. Um, that So if people have the family wage job they need to survive in today's economy. But we also need to look at how we're taxing people. We have the most regressive tax code in this country. And that's really where I'm going um, when I get there is the finance committee. Um, because I see so much inequity tied to our tax code. And while I care deeply about educational opportunities from early learning to higher education, that I want to make sure healthcare is accessible and affordable for all people, all of those things get down to the nuts and bolts. It's our tax system and our regressive tax code and that we are not. um, What kind of changes would you make in the tax code if you had the ability to? Well, I would definitely look at all the ways that we're taxing our low-income and middle-class families, um, which include um, our sales tax, our property taxes, um, gas tax, all of these things, right? And I got my property tax in the mail yesterday. Yeah, and it's depressing, Let right? me take a moment. A moment of silence for the tax bill. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> that may that or was... may not get paid because you might not be able you know. No, it'll, it'll yeah. get paid, guaranteed. I appreciate public services and, Absolutely. and such. We do. We all do, right? And we all need them. But why are big corporations not paying their fair share? Why do they? Well, don't, don't they pay taxes in like employee tax and FICA? And it's kind of a misnomer yes. that Amazon doesn't pay, pay any taxes. No. They do pay taxes. Yes. Um, just not to the extent where we would like it. Exactly. And is it fair? Is it right. fair? So really looking at a lot of these things, um, it, you know, I will admit it is not my area of expertise yet. Um, and I would um, hate to offer the solution mm-hmm. um, without really being thoughtful and pulling together, um, you know, a table of a lot of different folks to get different perspectives. Um, I will tell you one thing right now that I'm proud that I'm advocating on is an excessive compensation tax um, for big corporations that pay salaries of over $1 million a year. Um, If you can afford a $5 million a year salary for your CEO, um, then the excess of $1 million, uh, that $4 million, um, should be taxed at 5%. Um, That is a way that we can start to get big corporations to pay a little bit more of their fair share because they've got really fancy lobbyists that go down to Olympia and lobby, lobby, lobby for them. And they get corporate tax holes up the yin-yang and we need to put an end to that. Um, There's a lot of things that have incentives that were given many years ago that we have not reevaluated and sunsetted. So being on the finance committee is where I want to be because I think that aligns with our 23rd value, our 23rd LD's values in a lot of ways. People here, even the wealthy folks that live here are very, um, uh, you know, care deeply about services and about giving back to communities who uh, need some extra support and they understand this economy, this upside down economy, and they want affordable housing on Bainbridge Island, you know, mm-hmm. and they want um, families to thrive. They want children to have the supports they need to not end up in prison, <laughs> right? So the economy um, tied to uh, workers' rights and family wage jobs, tax reform, and affordable housing is definitely my area of passion um, and also in uh, education and early learning and preventing adverse childhood experiences um, by having wraparound services partnered with things like Head Start and early investments I think will pay us dividends and we won't be spending $80 billion a year on prisons if we're interrupting these 
social issues very early on. Um, and then, you know, as a registered nurse, um, you know, I worked at Martha and Mary in Paulsbo and I care deeply about our elderly community and the sadness that goes into and the just un, un, injustice around dying with dignity and alone in a nursing home. I've worked in a nursing home and I've also worked as an emergency room nurse at Harrison and there's so many broken pieces in our healthcare system. And then I've also been a person who has survived, you know, mental health issues and substance use disorder. And I know how those services, if they were more accessible, could really yeah, interrupt. Yeah, especially if there was a protocol, like here, here's our procedure. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes in with an overdose. So first we get them through that. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we start nurturing them in multiple fashions. You know, how do you get your food source? How do you get something to care about? How can we train you in a, in a renewable energy job, perhaps? How, yes. how can we help you, yes. you know, truly help you? Because, exactly. hey, I, okay, your heart's not going to start. Here's your prescription out the door next. Yeah. There's not even enough beds in the ER. There's not even enough ERs around. I mean, yeah. um, that's always an issue. Like, there's been a big debate this uh, week about, well, not a debate, but a a social thread talking about airlifting helicopters and whether you should buy insurance or not, or should you go with the fire department airlift or this commercial option Mm -hmm. and what does your insurance really pay? And this is a, this is a conversation that in a million years, I wouldn't even have given it a thought, but there's, there's people there that are saying, Hey, if I'm in trouble, how do I get off the rock? How Mm -hmm. do I get to emergency? Because uh, we have urgent care now, but we don't have a true emergency facility. And mm-hmm. driving to Bremerton is, you know, a haul. And it could be impacted by our, like, horrible uh, lack of investment in our infrastructure and our roads. And, I mean, I don't know about you, but I take the ferry from Seattle and come to the island. And it might take me an hour and a half to get off the island. And, it, I mean, It yeah. takes me to go like half a mile from my school to 305 because I was telling mm-hmm. you earlier that I pick up my son and we carpool to Tacoma three days a week during the week so I have to pick him up directly from school we leave at 320 and we barely get to the soccer field by 6 Wow! and the big part of it is from Sportsman Club to 305 that can be anywhere from 15 to 24 minutes Yeah, and then it's another 22 minutes basically to get to Paulsbo so I got 40 minutes in the car just to get off 11-mile rock. Yeah. And that's ridiculous. I know. But, you know, no roundabout on 305 now. Yeah. <laughs> there's, it's funny because we talk yeah. about these big ideas, the taxation and such, but there's little things that drive me nuts around this island. And one is the illumination of the kids' crosswalks by the schools. Mm-hmm. Um, there's maritime mist, and it's always gray and raining. I'm not going to say always take that back but there's a lot of visibility issues and there's coming over the hill sunlight hits d- mm-hmm. doesn't matter and we're there with a, a little orange flags on a stick you know and i go over to paul's bow and the entire yield sign is lit up you know mm-hmm. uh, as soon as there's motion detected in a crosswalk there'll be little blinking lights on the ground and stuff like that and we've had a few people hit in crosswalks here on the island but there's never a real conversation. Of, hey, let's just do something a little bit more simple and strap some reflective tape all the way up and down the pole. Can we get some reflective stuff, stuff like that? And then we talk about transportation and infrastructure. It's hard to get a mobility levy passed here. And this is thought of as a very big bicycling community, which it is. Mm-hmm. But the kids don't ride their bicycles around here. Um, it's not safe. There's... The white line is mm-hmm. basically crumbling into the ditch. There's very few sidewalks. Yeah. There's lots of trails. But I can't consciously say, hey, little man, ride your bike to school today. It's walk to school and keep your head on a swivel. Yeah. And it's I love all these big ideas, but sometimes there's this, these consultants that come in over and over and over. You know, I think about the logo a couple of years ago on Bainbridge Island. And how we paid $75,000 to, to have our island branded or something and then decided not to do that. You know, how, many, how many shoulders could we improve with that? How many 
reflective sidewalks could we have, or crosswalks could we have? Mm-hmm. Well, what's your big goal for Bremerton? And then what's your big goal for Bainbridge? Well, I mean, I think a good representative is thinking about all the district, including Paulsbo. Just was in Paulsbo this morning. I just jumped over that. Um, Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I think affordable housing is a big issue all across the district. And I think that, um, again, that's tied to revenue um, uh, and finding, uh, you know, the the resources to send to our local communities. Um obviously want to continue to work on uh, education across the spectrum, uh, investing in early learning, healthcare, uh, climate change. We cannot forget about that. That's like, um, you know, for some people, it seems like, you know, it's so far out there. It can't be an emergency. It's an emergency right now. We're seeing, um, you know, signs that, you know, the water's rising, um, wildfires are happening. We need to address the environment. Um, and I think that that is a big concern for our district. Um, and another area where I really want to, um, you know, develop some expertise. I'm not an expert in environment yet. Um, but thankful for a lot of folks who have reached out to me with really great ideas. And I think these issues are so intersectional, like I said, economy and having uh, a pipeline. One of my great ideas and, hopes and desires is to be the champion for uh, a pilot project around um, solar panel development manufacturing that includes um, an apprenticeship program that can maybe start in prison. Yeah, that makes sense. People have that opportunity. So we're, because we know that if we help people equip them with a job when they come out, they're very much less likely to um, reoffend, which increases Gives public safety. Because <laughs> every time someone reoffends, there's a new victim too. So thinking intersectionally about how we can develop and and help do our part for a lot of these big issues that the whole state is contending with, um, and that is one uh, project idea that I have that I'd love to be a champion on. Um, making sure unions are at the table for that with the environmental folks and um, people who care about criminal justice. Um, so, you know, a lot of this campaign is going to be about listening to the, the community, though, and what is it that they want me to prioritize. Um, these are my ideas, but that's not what a representative is. A representative uh, listens to their community. They're accessible. They have frequent, um, you know, meetings across the district um, to hear from the people that live in the district. So it's not about what does Tara want to do. It's about what does our community, our communities throughout the 23rd um, want me to prioritize. Um, I will have some areas of expertise where I've been able to lead in more effective ways. And there might be some places where I need to develop still. So I'm willing to do the work and to develop those expertise and have those conversations with folks who we um, look to like the tribes. The tribes have been leaning on environmental issues for a long time. Um, and I'm really proud that both of the tribes in our district have endorsed me. Um, so I will be leaning on them to really help me develop uh, environmental expertise to be the champion that our district deserves. All right. I got a few questions before you bounce here or ideas, suggestions, but you just brought up tribe that kind of triggered me because um, I just saw the the tape of Stony. And I'm wondering, you know, there's a situation where there was an officer shooting and it hasn't been the most transparent process. And it's a tribal member that got shot and killed. It was After seeing the videotape, it was horrific. I want to see the police report because what I saw there was a lack of ability to de-escalate and read the situation. Mm -hmm. They had been talking to him numerous times during the day. There was three of them. They were all armed. They were guarded up with their Kevlar and such. And then this guy who they knew is kind of like the woodcarver. That police officer had stopped him 60 times that month or whatever. Stoney was known (laughs) and he lost his life, you know, and he is definitely a product Mm-hmm. of some of the things that we talked about earlier. Absolutely. That if he had a path to recovery and yeah. help, he'd still be with us. Mm-hmm. I would love to throw that out there that when when the next 
you know, political cycle comes around that people start giving that consideration about not only the jails, but the tools that we're giving the officers mm -hmm. to do their job. Because yeah. I understand the guys being scared to go in the courthouse down in Pioneer Square. I understand the frustration with catch and release mm -hmm. type policies in, in downtown Seattle. I understand not wanting to get stuck with a needle or yeah. risking, you know, anything yourself. But I, also, I don't understand how police can get so scared when they have all all the assets to them. And I think a lot of it is, you know, the training of these police officers. Yeah. And with no training, we have a shortage of good police officers. There's not mm -hmm. people set in the standard. Anyway, went off yeah. on a little tangent there, but uh, it was in my I mind. Agree. And I, I'm kind of triggered because it's, it's been a long time and we don't have great answers. And it's in I your know. district. and I know. Um, Waiting for the answers, too. And I think it's uh, definitely... Um, you know, uh, continuation of systemic issues. Um, and we have been working on that, um, you know, with the passage of I-940 and training is being implemented. And a new bill just went through the legislature uh, three nights ago around collecting data, um, not only to to give a full picture of what's going on. Um, and, and it was led by, you know, John Lovick, Representative Lovick, who is a uh, former police officer, a uh, person of color, um, who really understands all the nuance behind this. So it is, and yeah, law enforcement, we need to train our first responders and equip them with the supports they need mm -hmm. um, so they can stay centered and um, present during times of crisis. Um, does that mean we, we should start every day with mindfulness and meditation? I don't know, maybe, right? Like, yeah, I'm not a cop. Yeah. I still find it hard to do. Yeah, I mean, and and so we need to absolutely support our first responders and give them the tools and the training that they need. And, and a lot of them I've talked to would love to have uh, uh, resources to like uh, hand somebody off to a case manager instead of putting them in jail, you know, for... Uh, this constant like rearrest, rearrest, rearrest of trespassing and and drug possession and mental health issues. You know, um, they're with it there, and we're building that through the lead program in Seattle that I've been working yeah. on. I, yeah, jeez, I could go on and on. Yes, and on. I know. But <laughs> using, since I, I guess I'm part of the community too. Yeah, I want to to be heard a little bit. So you you've listened to my crosswalk idea. Absolutely. Um, I want to throw out. Um, Two more, and then I'll let you get out of here. Okay. We need a s storm water drainage plan here on Bainbridge Island. I think we're the biggest polluter of the ocean in just the road water being washed into the ocean, and yet we protect the critical area ordinance and land um, with the homeowners, um, but yet the city doesn't do anything, and they're the biggest offender, but they – they constantly limit us. So that's that's difficult. I'd like to see a plan put out for that. Um, and then lastly, in our district, Bremerton and Bainbridge have both had this problem, is sewage spills. And I often worry about the environment here because we have a great, beautiful mm -hmm. island and a scenic driveway drive-through. And um, we have the ferry we have the Creosote Park, we have sewage leak, we have stormwater. All these things are going into the ocean. And then you combine that with the meth and stuff going into the drain fields mm -hmm. and the needles and you know all these whales dying with plastic in them. I would like to start here at home, you know, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk and have some type of ability to affect that in a positive change. And then lastly... Um, I want Jay Inslee to find a good spot um, and be a champion for the environment in some capacity in the next, uh, you know, I don't know, soon. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, and uh, if Greta could come over to the island and live here for a while, too, that'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> right, yes. Agreed. Um, Tara, no, electterasimmons.com. Tara is spelled T-A-R-R-A. Um, go there and learn more about our guests today. Thank you for your time. I appreciate Thank you coming you. in. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. It was nice to meet you and get to know more about you. Absolutely. Uh, you've been listening to the Bystander Podcast. 
Thank you.